Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Hello to you and what up though? Welcome. I'm Jay Hall to the History of Being Black podcast. And today I got a special guest with me, teacher, pastor, cultural translator, Rasul Berry. How you doing good, sir? Man, I'm good. I'm even better being here with you. Yeah, man. We were having a technical digital storm. (laughs) (laughs) We've been here for like 30 minutes and everything was just 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 going, just going. How you doing, brother? How you been? I'm doing well, you know, in in New York City, making it happen. Okay, what part? I'm in Brooklyn. Oh, I used to live in Brooklyn. Oh, get out. Yeah. Yeah, man. I used to stay in Carroll Gardens. I stayed in um Man, I, I was I was around. <laughs> okay. I was around. Yeah, Carroll Garden's not far. I'm in Crown Heights, so, so yeah, I stayed in Crown Heights. I stayed right off Brooklyn Ave. That's why I was like, my brain got. I was right <laughs> around the corner from the Brooklyn uh, Museum. Yep, yep, yeah, that's not far from me at all. Oh, okay, that's what's up. That's what's up. Uh, but you're not a native, though, right? You're from Philly. No, that's right. Born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you said that line in your life? Just, a lot. just asking. A lot. But it's funny. It's, it's, it's a testament to the staying power of that show because people, everybody knows it still. Everybody knows yeah, it. Yeah, they do. Where Now, you in Brooklyn now, but when that show came out, you were still back home in Philly. Yep. Yeah, definitely, you know, was was there making it happen. And, um, you know, it was definitely a, a, a great moment and point of connection. And I'm a hip hop head, too. So, you know, that was one of the things like, you know, people don't know, like prior to, you know, seeing Ice Cube or Queen Latifah or Ice T just like in movies, like that wasn't normal back then. He was the first no, rapper that was in a actual mainstream TV show at all. So, like to grow up as a hip hop head from Philly and see somebody that kind of represented your culture, Jazzy Jeff too, like that was very unique and groundbreaking at the time and and, and really special. So Yeah, I always feel besides my hometown, Detroit, because that just who me and who I shout out, but Philly, Philly has always been kind of underrated as far as I don't I still don't think Philly get the credit to what it contributes to the culture as much as people mm-hmm. um, may think. Because even before, during that era, like you said, I remember the glow on my face seeing a rapper on TV. Didn't even know what the show was going to be about. But just the the glow on my face, you know, with that. When you were watching that growing up in your household, when I named, you know, one of your titles as being a pastor, was your household, like, faith-based? Not really. Uh, like, growing up, I mean... My parents had uh, kind of joined the Nation of Islam when, right before I was born. That's where my name, Rasul, comes from. It's Arabic. It means prophet. Um, and then my parents split up when I was like two. My dad was uh, tragically you know, murdered when I was seven. And, and we just really didn't grow up. Like It kind of just drifted into secularness, right? And so mm. uh, for the most part, um, you know, faith wasn't a big part of my journey really until I... Uh, my senior year in high school and then starting to go to college, actually, um, which is 
kind of ironic. That's kind of the opposite of how it goes for some people. But for me, um, it was it was maybe in the background, a kind of generic belief in God, but not something that. But for me, like in those streets, I mean, it was the roots. It was, you know, um, you know, not that I remember 93, I think it was when like Nas, Wu-Tang, Big all came out at like the same time. It was like crazy. It was like this is, you know, the pinnacle. And and I think there were some great things that I mean, just in seeing myself in the culture reflected, that was good. And that like my sensibilities, um, my flavor like seeing that kind of put out there in the world was significant. And yet at the same time that not all of it was good because not all of what they were putting out there was something that you want, you know, um, your young kids to kind of embrace and emulate. And, um, but even after coming to faith, I discovered this like underground Christian hip hop movement that was also Philly was a huge player in that there was this group called the cross movement um that existed uh that really was like the they were like the precursor to lecrae in a lot of ways and, and reach records uh, lecrae just won two grammys this you know the, like that's his fourth total grammy uh christian rapper but um so i got connected to those guys and kind of got poured into and got to see all of the, those worlds put together like the the cultural street conversation and vernacular and flavor with kind of like this spiritual insight and truth. And of course, you know, you now again <laughs> is more commonplace, right? You know, to see that throughout music, you know, but back in the day and especially 20 years ago, like 25 years ago, that was that was not as common. And so music has had a huge part. And that comes from my parents. My parents were deep in the music. My, they met at a music store in Philly. Like, so even before, you know, on getting into the hip hop sound, like just even like Teddy Pendergrass and, you know what I mean? Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, you know, obviously kind of more in our time, Jill Scott, like, like the, like that kind of soul, Philly soul sound. It's actually a phrase, Philadelphia soul. Um, that has a long term legacy and, and richness that, you know, I think the newer cats, you know, kind of are walking in that same um, legacy. I mean, you talk about things that are pretty common, but I have to ask you, I mean, you said your family had joined the Nation of Islam before, right before you was born. Was there any conflict when you made that transition from being Muslim to Christian? Uh, no, it was funny. I didn't know how my mom was going to respond. This is a true story. So, like, I started... Uh, you know, going to like just being curious and, and being drawn to like connecting with God and a supreme being in a, in, a, in a more intentional way my senior year in high school. It was the spring. I never forget. It ended up being Palm Sunday. I had no idea. I didn't even know what a Palm Sunday was, but I decided to go out to this church. But I was like, yo, I don't know how my mom's going to react. So I tried to sneak out like the front door just then I see her and she happened to turn around <laughs> right and was like oh you look nice where are you going because I had like a shirt and tie on and this was like no no other re like that was like unusual because we weren't church going and I thought for a split second should I lie and I'm like man you can't lie about going to church so I was like uh, I'm going to church and just not and she was like oh, okay cool pray for me and she was really supportive and cool and um and so like that was like a relief and it was just kind of like it was all good. And, and, and to see that she actually, you know, also had 
made a, a, a faith journey that kind of, you know, uh, you know, that kind of put us on a similar path. And so, uh, so yeah, it was ended up being cool, but I didn't know. Um, there it wasn't cool with everybody. There was some, you know, family that was like, "Yo, what are you doing?" Like, um, but um, but I had enough of the support from those who who mattered the most to me that um, that it encouraged me to keep going. I gotta tell you, I've heard of teenagers getting into a lot of wild things, but sneaking off the church is a new one right now. <laughs> That's, that's a yeah, brand. Man. That's a brand new one for me, right? That's there. That's a brand new one. And then, of course, <laughs> you know, brand new one. Yeah, my mentality. I was like, really, like, I was like, God, you had, you have a funny sense of humor and timing because, like, this was. So I, I got baptized like the August after I graduated from high school, going into my freshman year on campus, a place that just six months before I was ready to bust it wide open and experience all that college life had to offer, especially as it related to girls. And now I'm like, wait a minute, I gotta like do this have a have a whole different mentality uh about this and uh and so that was um that was that was funny time i was like oh man couldn't it have been six months later but you know but it was actually (laughs) a good thing for me to kind of renew my mind before i lost my mind because god knows it had i not had a different mindset before i i got in before my my freshman year i i might have been too distracted again uh, but but, you know, I do have to admit in high school, and maybe you can help me on this, there is something about that senior year. I remember people coming senior year, January, and being born again Christians. Right. You know, at 18 or 17, you know, that is there something to that that you can expound on? Or is that just me and you? No, I think um, it isn't just, you know, anecdotal. I, the re- research shows that, you know, I think there's a, that most people make decisions of faith like around, you know, by the time they're 18 years old, 19. But I do think that um, there is a certain as you're starting to try to figure out the world for yourself beyond, you know, what maybe you have been taught, what maybe you had just taken for granted um, that you start to explore some things. I, I can tell you the truth. Honestly, for me, it was that. I had I was what I would call a secular self-righteous person um, by the time I was a junior in high school and a senior, meaning that like I just thought I was such a good person. I didn't need a I just was like, oh, man, people just depend on religion and God because they don't they, they just need a crutch and I don't need any of that. I just treat people right and do the right thing. And then what happened? What had happened was um, I had two girls that liked me at the same time which was a rare occurrence for me because that was not my testimony. And I tried to be with both of them at the same time, got caught. And this girl said something I'll never forget. She said, you know, you're no better than other guys. In fact, you're worse because you think you're better than them. And that was... Oh, you were um, the F boy. Yeah, yeah. And that was... uh, Back then, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That was like the moment, that was what God used to show me like, your 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 sense of righteousness is still crooked compared to my straight lines and i was really broken cuz i really did think i was like i'm killing it in school i got good grades i'm i'm I was voted best role model by my class like i'm that dude like and it was like well not when you really need it most and what do you do and who do you draw on and how do you even move past the mistakes and the things that you do that hurt other people 
How do you forgive yourself? How do you find forgiveness? Um, those were big questions that I started to now ask, not with the sense of arrogance that I had before of just thinking, because I just absorbed what everybody was around me. Everybody had, oh, Christians are hypocrites and the church is this and that. And, and I just assumed all those things were true because that's what I was around. Because uh, And then when I started to like go, well, what about you? Are you a hypocrite? Because you, you just, this person thinks you are. What do you do with that? It started asking deeper questions and, and it got me to a place of, you know, uh, a deeper search than what, what it was. And up until that point, and it was funny because at, in college, I also started really coming into this cultural journey and identification as a black man at a predominantly white school. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. And um, and those worlds tended to feel like they were in conflict with each other. Like, you know, people who were in a conscious community were oftentimes like <laughs> blaming Christianity for all the problems in the world. And then oftentimes the church was like looking at them like they were the problem. And so I, so I was finding myself with a foot in both worlds. And then what happened was, and this is where my academic journey really helped. I majored in Africana studies and I took an African-American literature class. And we read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass and Harriet A. Jacobs' uh, narrative, Life of a Slave Girl. And <laughs> Frederick Douglass is like going in on the hypocrisy of the American church at the time during slavery, right? The whole book. And it's just like, and he's this incredible writer. And then you get to the appendix and he has this appendix where he explains and he says, well, wait a minute, just so y'all don't get it twisted. I love the pure, peaceable Christianity of Christ which is why I hate the slaveholding, women whooping, man plundering, woman stealing religion of this land. The two of which are so different that to call one the other is the greatest of libels. I was like, whoa. And I started to realize, wait, wait a minute, Frederick Douglass, he understood that what he had and what the scripture taught was, was so different that he called it the greatest of libels to even call slaveholding Christianity, Christianity. And then I read the narrative life of a slave girl and I see the same kind of story. And that kind of put me on this trajectory of going like, oh, my blackness, my African American identity is not at all in conflict with this journey. In fact, when I look at the stories of Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Marcus Garvey, you know, W.B. Du Bois, uh, I mean, you can just go down the line, Alexander Crummel, all these luminaries, they were very much rooted in the faith. And so that kind of gave me more um, insight and depth as I move forward. So you're going through college. You're supposed to be the wild boy, but you turn out to be the quote quintessential F boy <laughs> or before. But yeah. your faith has guided you through academics and, and, and Penn. So you graduate. Are you saying, hey, listen, I'm about to go to a church. You know, not, like how does one make not that step or do you, you go out there and work for you? Okay. Yeah, no, I, I still like, you know, I knew I wanted to make a difference in the world and, um, but I didn't know exactly. I like, I kind of went through this journey at first. I was going to be a lawyer, but then I was like, wait a minute, the law, I took a law class and I'm like, it's not even about what's true. It's just arguing. I'm like, nah, I can't do that. Then I thought I was going to be a psychologist and I was like, no, the social issues of life and sociology matter to me. So I kind of didn't know. And it literally the week before I graduated, I ended up walking. Somebody told me about a job fair and that was happening on campus. I go there and the Philadelphia school district is there. 
and they were hiring people who had a degree that didn't have uh, a teaching you know, uh, certification to be an intern teacher in the classroom. So I, I was like, all right, let me apply. So I'm like, because I was thinking about grad school for education to figure out if I wanted to be a teacher. So I'm like, I could either go into debt $30,000 to figure out if I want to teach, or I could actually get paid $30,000 to teach. That's like a $60,000 gap. Let me try t- teaching and see what it's there. So I did teach and um, loved it to a first grade as an intern teacher um, for a year. But while I was doing that, I was still leading Bible study on campus at the, the Bible study that I had started as a junior. And that was really where my heart was. And then two people came and said, hey, we want uh, you to start a ministry at Howard University, HBCU in D.C., and I said, yes. Okay. Okay. You know. Yes. Yes. HU, you know, exactly. And uh, moved down to DC the following year and got married and was there for four years. And then it started this whole trajectory of campus ministry and kind of church adjacent, what we call a power church, um, and did that for 15 years before you know, ever going into a space where I would be a teaching pastor with the guy that started with me at Howard, like we were both roommates doing ministry together, culturally relevant, answering questions, dealing with issues of justice. And then we kind of went our different ways. Um, And then he ended up in New York where he's from originally and started planting a church called The Bridge. And then the following year I joined and, you know, became part of the pastoral team and we kind of reunited and it's been, you know, on and popping ever since, but I still do other things too. I'm, I'm bivocational. So I have another job uh, that's kind of my main gig, which is creating content that um, specifically to amplify black Christian content creators. Um, and so that's still a big part of what I do. Yeah, I've seen some of your sermons online. And one thing that stood out to me is you're very knowledgeable of the Bible, but there's also a sense of blackness that you like to bring. Is that something that you were taught or that's just inherited? That's just you. You know, one of the things is, is going back to the Phillyness, right? Like the Philadelphia is the birthplace of the black church. Um, Richard Allen uh, left St. George uh, Methodist Church um, after experiencing racism there and started uh, Mother Bethel AME Church, um, which still is in Philly, 1789. Um, and that starts this whole movement, um, and, and you know, of of the of, of historically black churches and denominations, and so, um, really, in a lot of ways, throughout time, like Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, they were addressing the issues of slavery and 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 serving the needs of the people, even building out ministry to Africa. They called themselves African free society. They organized themselves to support, you know, their people as part of what they saw as their ministry. And, um, and so like that legacy is very much a part of how churches operate in Philly. And, um, and so definitely was embedded in me in terms of like how to think about my faith and spirituality holistically um, as a human that is made in God's image and that is made um, as an African descent person. and But I also had some great teachers, not only 
that history and that legacy is a part. But, um, you know, and even looking at, you know, being in a Baptist denomination and, and that was, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s, um, you know, pedigree. Uh, but then coming down to D.C., uh, there was a church uh, there. Shout out to um, Encounter Life uh, Church uh, at the time it was called Washington Christian Center. And the pastor, uh, he was uh, he graduated from Howard with a dental degree, um, Dr. A. Lorenzo McKinney. But he was like teaching. This is back in 2000. And he was like explaining the black presence in the Bible, explaining like how all the people going back, you know, Moses Abraham, that these were African origin people and they were brown, like, and so he was teaching these things as part of understanding the cultural heritage that comes. And that really is very much tied to Marcus Garvey. Like, I didn't realize that the whole Garvey movement, he had, you know, um, was also founded and based on this connection of the African roots of, uh, of his Christian faith, which he was very bold about. And so really the roots of Pan-Africanism going all the way back to Alexander Crummel are uh, steeped and rooted in that tradition and um, of, of faith. Um, and so it it has been a journey of rediscovering something that when I, you know, you hear Christianity is a white man's religion, which I heard a lot growing up, um, having to debunk those myths, realizing that it's not based on an accurate understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. And so for me, undoing and confronting systemic racism, white supremacy, which is very much opposed to a truth that fundamentally you see from Genesis 1, when God says, let us make man in our likeness and our image, like that's humanity. And then when you see where it was created, you definitely know that it's not in Europe. And so like those truths I find to be very much a part of what we need to communicate to undo the lies that have permeated our society for so long. Is that how we get to the Juneteenth Faith and Freedom movement? <laughs> yeah, so Juneteenth, I think, so those are the, like, that's the backdrop that kind of has informed and shaped how I think about reality and all the struggles that we've had, especially, you know, the recent movement post Trayvon, Michael Brown, George Floyd. Um, and in the midst of that, it did pique my interest. I didn't grow up celebrating Juneteenth. That's not a big, that wasn't a big thing in Philly growing up. But when I saw this story of Miss Opal Lee, who becomes the known as the grandmother of Juneteenth, you know, gets nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for her efforts. Like this old lady, she's like in her 90s and she's walking around in the country and talking about the importance of Juneteenth. And it was one moment where I discovered that reading about her, that one of the names of Juneteenth was Jubilee Day. And I was like, wow, okay, reason why that blew my mind. So Jubilee is a festival, is, is this, it's called what I call the Super Bowl of Sabbaths in the Old Testament in Leviticus 25. So there was a whole system, right? So again, going back to Genesis chapter one, after God creates the world and the, in the universe six days, it says on the seventh day, he rested. And, that, and then in Exodus, when you get to see Moses deliver the people from slavery, um, he's institutes, he's instructed to institute uh, Sabbath rest for them. So they, you know, seventh day, uh, that's supposed to be a day of rest. Um, now, in Leviticus, when they are giving the rules of how to organize society, you get not just a seventh day, but then every seven years, 
they would have to let the ground have a Sabbath day in it and not even harvest or anything for seven years. Well, seven years times seven years is 49 years, right? So on the 50th year, they had what they called the Jubilee. And this is why I call it the Super Bowl of Sabbaths, because it's like the, the mega Sabbath. It's seven years times seven years, 49. So it's like, and in this Sabbath, they were supposed to release the debts of anybody who was in debt. If anybody was in bondage because of their debt, they were supposed to be let free. And people who had lost their lands because of financial difficulties um, would get those lands back. And it was a total restoration and revival of society that would undo the injustices that happened um, over those previous decades. And it was called a jubilee because there was a jubilation in the sense of it would be a celebration of making a, a joyful noise before the Lord because ultimately at the end of the day, his foundation is built on justice and righteousness. So for these formerly enslaved people to see in the Juneteenth story, jubilee, like they see in it, like, yo, they see themselves in the scripture and go, this is the freedom that God had you know, promised to the nation of Israel. Now we get to live it out as, as believers and as people, as people who have been praying and trusting that God would deliver us. Now we get, so the fact that they called it Jubilee Day was like amazing to me. Cause you know, do you realize the type of like theological and biblical and like scholarship and insight you would have to go, yo, this is Jubilee. This is like what happened in Leviticus. And so that means they knew the story of freedom. They knew the story of, of, of deliverance and they were trusting for that. And I, so I wanted to understand how did that happen, especially when we know that they were tried, like they were, they were attempted to be made docile through embracing this faith, but instead they're seeing their own liberation in it from the very beginning. How did that happen? And why is this important for us to celebrate and acknowledge now, even if we're not from Texas, or even if Juneteenth isn't the day that our ancestors, like that wasn't the day my ancestors um, experienced freedom because we were on the other side of the country. But so I wanted to learn that story and discover it and sit with it through the lens of those whose ancestors had been set free on that day. So we reached out to and we researched and found people who were the descendants of those who were emancipated on Juneteenth and got their story. And we thought it was an important story to tell to get the history right at a time when people are really challenging history and not wanting history to be taught, but also to understand the spiritual and faith component of it too, which was a really even bigger part than I even noticed by just looking at that Jubilee work. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you watch the film, the film plays out with you in it. It's just you're taking this journey, you know, mm -hmm. and it reminds me of the journey that a lot of us, being black in America have to one day take for ourselves, like this sense of like self-discovery, like where you from, you know, like your podcast, like, you know, like where you from, like, who are you and, and all of that. And there was one woman you was talking to, and I can't remember her name right now, but she was talking about the Bible that was presented to slaves that had stripped out 
mm-hmm. all of the revolutionary stuff in there. Right. So when you talk about keeping us docile, is that one of the angles that you was trying to, because you, you brought up earlier about debunking myths. Yeah. Is that one of the myths that oh. you're trying to make an attempt to explore? Absolutely. And so what I had to discover later in life is that the reason why people did refer to Christianity as a white man's religion was because there was a version that was in existence that was a distorted version of the actual faith that was in fact set up in in and proclaimed to support white supremacy and that version of um christianity is what you see probably no more uh symbolically represented than in the slave bible where enslavers literally took out sections of the Bible that had so all that stuff about the Exodus and Leviticus, all the stuff that the enslaved people kind of found hope in, they took those parts out and they only and so they distorted the meaning of the what was left over without that context to make it sound like God was approving of this system of chattel slavery that was race based. And so, you know, it was important to lean into that story and understand that the very existence of a slave Bible where they cut out like 80, 90% of the old Testament and a significant amount of the new Testament actually reveals that they wouldn't, if, if the Bible in its whole story supported slavery, then they wouldn't have had to take anything out. But the fact that they had to take out so much, it reveals that when you do read it, that there's a story of liberation that exudes in every page, like it just pops out. And so I thought that was really interesting to see that, that dynamic. And again, when you look at those who were the leaders in the community, like Reverend Jack Yates, I didn't know that when we started doing the story. Like, I, like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me the person who essentially started what we now know as third and fourth floor of Houston, what was then called Freemanstown, was a pastor who also planted multiple churches in the city and created Emancipation Park, which still exists to this day. And we get to talk to his great granddaughter. Like, that's an important story that we wanted to get out there and tell. So let me ask you, for for those of us that struggle, mm-hmm. because as you know, when it comes to you know faith, it's a it's a very testing thing. Sure. When did this Bible become complete, or is it complete? Yeah. So, you know, uh, well, as it relates to the slave Bible, um, you know, what you would be talking about is a uh, a version that was clearly um, distorted and, and aspects removed um, that had previously been existent. So in the, Prot- in, the tra- in the Protestant tradition, there's 66 books, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. Um, there's, you know, theological and historical discussions that exist about the canon of scripture. But, for, you know, for the most part, um, in terms of are there things that to add to it or not? But, um, you know, when it comes to the completion of, of a canon, I mean, that was something that had been, you know, settled, you know, over 1500 years ago. And, um, and what's right for what's good for teaching and understanding about life and practice is still valid and relevant today and has been useful for as a, as a, as a platform to proclaim true, complete liberation ever since. And so I think, um, you know, what we see in this aberration of the slave Bible and things like it wasn't because there was a lack of access and knowledge. It wasn't very like, 
like we have the historical record of going all the way back. I studied Hebrew and Greek, you know, in, in the seminary. And so, I mean, we have manuscripts going back to like the first and second century. So, uh, you know, so like we know what's actually there and what was what people were authentically trusting in it. And so did the uh, enslaved people, because when they were meeting out in the woods in their, you know, secret, you know, uh, forbidden, you know, uh, churches, they were they were teaching Moses. You know, they were singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for the, you know, carry me home. They were talking about waiting in the water and seeing the deliverance. And so they kind of knew the truth, even in the midst of attempts to keep it from. So I got to ask you just a few more since we got like 10. And you seem to have an awareness of this. So I, I have a theory and me and the producer Ghost, we talk about this. I just feel like when you black, you come with a certain level of skepticism. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you have to. <laughs> Kind of go beyond, go beyond, right? Go beyond the page, right? Go beyond what's been um, presented to you, right? Is there somewhere in the line because you broke down how, and I encourage everyone to, you know, watch Juneteenth, Faith for Freedom. But as you go down the line, is there somewhere of an existence of a belief to say, "Hey, man, Joseph is really Jesus' daddy, but he's still the son of God." Is there a place of thought in that? Uh, when, I guess when you say his daddy, you mean biologically, or do you mean? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Like Joseph is really Jesus' biological father, and Mary technically wasn't a virgin, but somehow he still is the son of God. Is there a place of thought in that, or is it what we've been told? Well, I mean, I think again, I base, you know, my foundational understanding. What? Well, let me say zero. Let me step back. Ninety-five percent of what we know about the historical person of Jesus exist in the gospels like like there isn't like there's i have the historian josephus who is a non-christian historian writing in the first century about the christian movement and you do you know he, see him write about you know jesus as well so we do have you know in, a, in a, just through roman records and other jewish accounts the accounts of who jesus are but they're very kind of far away or a bit more distant 95% of what we know about the life and the teachings of Jesus exists in the Gospels. And um, and so when I read, when, and now again, when I go back to being in high school and college and just reading and still today, when I read the Gospels, I'm like, who else? No, nobody that teaches like this. Like, like, you know what I mean? The, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, you know what I mean? The, you know, uh, loving your neighbor, like, uh, you know, just all of these incredible, the golden rule, do unto others is that they would have them do unto you. Like, I've never seen this depth of teaching. And then, of course, the the testimony of the healings. And so for me, um, I give a lot of weight and confidence to the gospel accounts. Um, and I think especially because the followers of Jesus, they all died um, refusing to recant their belief that he had risen from the dead. So it's kind of hard for me to believe that if that the, if the resurrection is possible, which is the foundation, foundational historical teaching of Jesus, then why wouldn't the virgin birth be also possible? Like if somebody like, you know what I mean? And so I don't as much have a, uh, I know scientifically, and I mean, there's like, even in according to the Bible, like there's only one person in the history of humanity who ever was born that way. So it is a very unique anomaly. Um, so I can understand the skepticism there. And yet at the same time, I would say the whole thing is about the entrance of the supernatural into the natural. 
And so, um, mm-hmm. so I think that is it possible technically for someone to still believe in the resurrection and that Jesus is Lord while still holding to a physical birth? I guess so. Um, but I just think, um, you know, again, if the tomb is empty, that's a, a much greater uh, thing to put confidence in than to me than a, a miraculous birth. Um, you know, which again is still very unique, but you know, in the context of things that Jesus said and taught, uh, there are other things that are just as unique too. That's real. So how does a, where, you know, the part where you being a cultural translator, right? Yeah. How do you express that by saying, Hey, listen, it's an unnatural, you know, insertion into a natural, you know, she was a virgin, right? right. How do you express that without the modern day thought reaction to say, well, does that mean God didn't ask for consent? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, again, I go back to the Gospels, because what you have is before it doesn't just like tell us that one day Mary just woke up and she was expecting. The angel actually is, is what we're taught is that appears to her and they have a conversation and her and the intention of God using her to give birth to the Messiah is communicated to her and she gives consent. She says, let it be according to thy will. But she's just bugging out that God would even choose her in the first place. And so there isn't a um, forcefulness about it. It was an con- incredible honor and one that she appears. And I think because of a, a lot of times a history of misogyny and things like that, we like people don't give Mary as much credit as you see in the text. You know what I mean? She's the one that, you know, believes when Zachariah, John the Baptist's father, he, he don't even believe. And he gets kind of scolded when the angel appears to him. But when it comes to and then even with Joseph, it's like, don't be afraid to take her as he he wants to get her. He wants to get a, a divorce because he's like, all right, yeah, virgin birth, whatever. You got pregnant. You got you messed around somewhere. I'm going to do it quietly. I ain't going to put you on front street, but we ain't having this 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 wedding no more. Like I'm out. And the angel has to appear to him to go, no, 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 no. It really is happening the way that she said it is. Um, And so, you know, there is that treatment of the situation that you see is 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 kind of wrestled with. But throughout the whole process, Mary is very much honored as I mean, like, yo, do you want to give, you know, like God's plan is to choose you to give birth to the Messiah. Um, she, She said, be it unto me according to thy will. And there's actually songs about this. There's a whole Mary's Magnificat that is sung during uh, Christmas time that is just giving her this very thoughtful, you know, deeply theological response that Mary has to being given this news and accepting it as for herself. So I I don't think that there was any uh, any doubt that there was a sense of not just acceptance, but exuberance about, you know, the position that she found herself in. Okay. That's good. I mean, just, just, just two more. So even if, and and that's, that's a good explanation. So thank you. Cause that's enough to explore even further, but would that change anything in the effect, even if she wasn't, I mean, being the son of God and we're being taught that we're all sons of God and that would that really kind of change anything and all of the miracles that Jesus did and the story and everything like that? Or does it, that has to remain in order for it to have the impact that it has? You know, I, I think it's a good question. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, there are things that we all wrestle with. Like, even if we go back to the doubting Thomas, right? Like the, the disciple that's known 
for his questions and skepticism. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared post-resurrection to all the other disciples. And he said, look, if unless I touch his hand and, put, you know, then I ain't believing. And then Jesus appears and says, hey, Thomas, you can put your finger through my hand. You can you can put your finger through my scars where they scar me. It's me. I'm not, I'm, I'm real. And he, he responds and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you because you now you believe. But ble- even more blessed are those who haven't seen and believed. And so there is a um, there's a stretch and there's a challenge that comes with um, holding to that which you can't see or rationalize that also comes with great um, blessing to you because the reality is the, the life we live, there are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of things that we can't explain that, you know, we have to, but like, look, I may not understand why my mom and my dad told me, okay, you got to get up in the morning. First thing, you got to make your bed. You got to, you know, like respect authority, like look both ways before you cross the street. I may not understand why I need to look both ways before I cross the street. But if I trust it, then I still reap the benefits of what it means to live under the teaching of do this thing that you don't quite understand. Be respectful of authority. Like, And in the same way, in the faith space, there are just blessings involved when I can trust that which I can't completely wrap my head around. And so in that sense, I think that um, that, there, that, that what you gain is greater than what you lose. And yet at the same time, um, I, I think that it is still possible, you know, you know, to believe all the other things that are true about Jesus without necessarily the virgin birth. I just think that especially as you get deeper into the understanding of, you know, the pre-existence, like the Bible teaches that Jesus existed before he was in human form, right? Like if you go to Colossians chapter one, and it talks about that the world was made through him in his pre-existent form. So like, I don't have a problem with the earthly manifestation and how it happened, because I actually believe that, you know, Jesus says to the, to the people in John chapter eight, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I rejoice to see Abraham. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're not even 50, bro. Like Abraham was like over a thousand years ago. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And so the divinity of Jesus are very much described and explored as something that transcends his earthly existence. So how he got here on earth is not that hard for me to grasp with because there's a much bigger fish to fry, which is, is this man actually divine um, to be worshiped? which is what happens after Thomas sees him and he bows down and he worships him and Jesus did not correct him. Like he, he doesn't say you're committing blasphemy by worshiping me. And so because of that, he says, my he calls him Lord and God. So because of that, it's like, if I can get to embrace that, then the fact that God could choose somebody to have uh, give birth to the Messiah without human male intervention is not that difficult of a leap actually. All right, last one so we can get up out of here. What is your vision for the Black church when it comes to its relationship with everybody being inclusive? You know, LGBTQ+, you know, regular schmegglers and all of that. You as a modern day, you know, cultural translator, teacher and all of that. What's what's your vision as we move forward out of here? You know, um, I think my vision is one in which uh, it is really important to understand history and to understand how we got here. There's a sad and tragic reality that, you know, for all of the things that I can look at and celebrate that uh, the church has done and people in the church like Frederick Douglass, like, you know, I mentioned Richard Allen, 
Absalom Jones. There there are also some really horrible, you know, failures and mistakes that have happened as well. Not just talking about, you know, the history and legacy of racism in, you know, the church uh, in America, especially the white church, but even looking at, you know, as we've treated those who are minorities. Like, I mean, there's stories that I know of, of people who got pregnant and they bring the woman up and they kind of shame her, but the dude that got her pregnant is still in leadership and still, you know, there. And, and that kind of um, uneven, uh, harsh treatment, um, when it, especially as it relates to sex and sexuality and, and gender conversations, that there's a lot to repent of. And I think that the thing that gives me hope and encouragement and endurance is to recognize that I'm not here to try to defend everything. I don't have to try to defend everything that the church has done because I'm here to point people to Jesus. I think he is the liberator. He is the the, the savior. And so along the way, we are taught to repent or to turn away from, to to, to really look in with a great deal of humility and even um, remorse, call out those ways in which people um, who... uh, you know, have been abused in church contexts who have been dis, you know, we, we see all the, the instances of, you know, child sexual assault or, you know, the way in which people have been ostracized because, you know, uh, of their, their identity is gay or, you know, trans or all of these things are things that don't line up again with the Bible. So in the same way that I could look at a, a slaveholder and say, um, this person fell short and distorted the teaching of scripture in order to be more propping up their own vision of society. I have to be honest and consistent and look at the same way in which the church has fallen short. I think there's a way of holding true to, again, going back to my own journey, my vision of what to do with my body and myself was completely selfish and oriented around what pleased me over anything else. And God challenged that, called that out you know, after I was trying to be a player and called me to a higher level of honoring women and and, and that seeing that how I needed to treat myself needed to go beyond my own inclinations or desires and had to go toward a higher goal. And so I still teach that. And I, but we also recognize that we all fall short of God's glory. And so we need to have grace and truth. And I think our society is looking for grace and truth. And so the way that we promote uh, that story is by just telling the truth. And if we can just tell the truth and be gracious and honest about it in the way, same way that I could say, look, we all have fallen short of God's glory, but there is hope and there is a standard that we can strive to. I think that we would be better off as a society. And I think we'll be moving toward the wholeness and liberation that truly exists. Appreciate you, Rasul Berry, man. Thank you very much for coming over here and giving your knowledge. Much appreciated. I encourage everyone to make sure they check out Juneteenth, Faith and Freedom. Is there anything I'm missing as far as a link they can go to to support yeah, you also? Um, I would say you can go to experiencevoices.org. That's the uh, Experience Voices. Voices is the arm of our Daily Bread Ministries that amplifies the voices of Black Christian content creators. You can go there, go to experiencevoices.org forward slash Juneteenth. That'll give you all of our Juneteenth content, including I got the chance to make a soundtrack with with the newly Grammy four time Grammy winning Lecrae is on that album Show Baraka, uh, there's some great hip hop R and B poetry 
all celebrating the sense of liberation, but the film is there. Uh, we've been selected um, by PBS, so you can uh, check it out. Um, uh, but the link is there as well. Um, and we have some con some content, some some content to help you grow spiritually and in your historical knowledge as well. Experiencevoices.org forward slash Juneteenth. Check it out there and please, you know, stay connected to us. I also have the podcast that you mentioned where you're from, uh, which we just launched today, our sixth season uh, with some great conversation about the intersection of faith and culture. So thanks for having me and, and definitely uh, look for those resources. Appreciate you. And as a first time visitor, we always encourage you to come back. Please make sure you hit us up because we like for this door to be revolving because we need more voices like yourself. So highly appreciate you. Oh. Our blackness has definitely been elevated. Thank you very much. So as usual, make sure you catch the History Being Black podcast on Spotify. Make sure you catch it on Apple Music and make sure you catch it on anywhere else where you can catch podcasts. You can also follow History Being Black on IG. You can also make sure you follow me on Lion Media and hit me up on all platforms at J Hall Society. You be blessed with successful. Talk to you soon. We ghost. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.